0: Hello, dear listeners. There's an exciting new class coming up and I want to let you all know about it. December 7th and December 14th taught by my friend and co-founder of SheWrites.com, Deborah Siegel Acevedo. If you've ever dreamed of doing a TEDx talk or a TEDx style talk, this two session class for just $99 is such a great place to start. Debra has helped hundreds of thought leaders land TEDx talks, myself included, and I can honestly say that I would not have gotten my TEDx talk if not for Debra, because of the way she helped me hone my ideas and present it in a way that worked for the TEDx stage. So want to get your wheels turning? Dream big, and if this is on your bucket list, join the class. I will be there, and you can find out all the details and the link to register at shewritesuniversity.com. Hello, magicians, folklorists, ritualists, and manifestors. I am Brooke Warner, and I am here with my magic-spinning co-host, Grant Faulkner. And we're coming at you today with a little magic, but also with a serious conversation about the considerations that arise when you're writing on a topic that is representative of your culture. So, you know, Grant, uh, we've talked about cultural appropriation before with a couple different guests, notably Kirsten Chen and Rebecca Roanhorse. And both of them spoke to experiences of either worrying about cultural appropriation or brushing up against it. In their cases, they were writing about cultures they're a part of. And so for Kirsten, that was being Singaporean and writing a book set in Singapore. And for Rebecca, that was about being a Native woman and writing about Native traditions And I think often when we talk about cultural appropriation, that conversation is about dominant culture, white groups appropriating the cultures and traditions of minority groups, but it's not limited to that dynamic. Cultural appropriation obviously happens, too, when someone is born into a new culture, and that's the case with today's guest, Jay Allen Cross, who's of Mexican descent, but he was born to the culture of the United States. And so he's written this book about Mexican folklore and culture. It's called American Brujeria, and he's taken great pains to articulate how and whether he could speak for his culture, uh, or this culture of Mexican-Americans that he's specifically writing this book for, because he's both inside of it and outside of it. Um, And so with writing, whether it's about our culture, our origins, our traditions, our families, we always carry this great responsibility. And I'm wondering, Grant, how can writers hold that sense of responsibility when they come to the page without it feeling like too much of a burden?
1: Such an interesting question, isn't it? Because so many of us are part of a culture, yet also apart from it, because of the way we move around and essentially form our identities by absorbing other cultures and places. I'm I'm trying to remember the name of this author I read about, and I'm failing to remember the name, but um, I read recently about exactly this situation, an author who actually had a version of a sensitivity reader even though he could lay claim to an authentic tie to the culture he'd grown up in and written about. So I found that very interesting. So the idea was to pursue truth and be sensitive to the gaps you might have so that you're being responsible. So I guess to answer your question is just that we need to be humble to start and we need to be open and we need to ask for help sometimes and be open to that.
0: Right. And and this whole conversation is important for right now. I mean, we've been seeing this positive trend in the industry at large around sensitivity reads. One of the reasons I was drawn to Jay and his book is because of growing up Mexican culture adjacent, I guess I would call Mm -hmm. it. You know, I grew up in Southern California in San Juan Capistrano, and it's a mission town and a place that's teeming with Mexican heritage. And downtown San Juan has changed a lot since I was little. But uh, when we moved there in the early 80s, it was really slow. And I seriously remember it being dusty. (laughs) Maybe that's just through the lens of nostalgia. Uh, But there was like a trading post. It's still there across the street from the mission. And I remember spending lots of time looking in there at all the Mexican jewelry and gemstones and tchotchkes. And when you grow up in California, you get a lot of history of the missions and the settlers who came up from Mexico. And there's a tangible thread of Mexican culture nearly everywhere. Uh, And so the reason I share this is because when I got the galley for American Brujeria, which is Jay's book, I was immediately drawn to it because I'm really interested in Mexican folklore, traditions and culture. And the book is really marketed to inform Mexican Americans who want to better understand and practice some of these magic traditions. Um, But in my reading it, you know, I was thinking about I'm really the crossover audience, right? Because I have a genuine interest in the subject matter. And that's kind of a coveted thing in book publishing, where you have your primary audience, and this one obviously has a primary audience. And then you have this secondary audience that's largely a group that has an affinity for the thing. Uh, And so I'm just curious, Grant, has there been any memorable book that you've read lately that you felt wasn't really marketed toward you, but you ended up being really drawn to it anyway?
1: That's interesting. I I wish I had a better answer for you. Um, It's a tough question for me because I have to confess I read with such a narrow purpose these days. That is, I have an actual reading list that is directly related to my writing projects. But I did veer from that recently, and it was sort of accidental, and maybe that's the best way to open up and become that secondary audience. Um, I randomly listened to uh, the musician, rock and roll artist, what's the proper name, Liz Fair, um, on a podcast. And we share many of the same demographics. She's about my age. I remember listening to her great album, Exit from Guyville in uh, the early 90s. But she was talking about creativity on this podcast, and I was so fascinated by certain things that she was saying. And so I went out and got her collection of essays, which is her autobiography called Monster Stories. And so again, it's like I'm a second, I guess the secondary audience, as you said. Um, I'm definitely not a primary audience for this memoir. I wouldn't have normally like sought it out. But I did hear about it and I was interested in it. So yeah, I've got it and I'm reading it and I'm happy to read something off my list And I just want to note that another point of interest was that Liz Farah has done NaNoWriMo in the past. She's written novels with us, and I want to get her on the show. (laughs)
0: Yes, please. That would be amazing. And uh, well, one thing before we wrap up, I just want to go back to this question of responsibility, because Jay dedicates a lot of space in his introduction to his feelings about the responsibility he has for writing the book. And he mainly shares how much positive reception he got, but he was also very transparent about fretting over his right to author the book. And so many people struggle with these feelings. And it reminded me yet again, you know, just the importance of this reminder uh, that the word author is the root of authority. Um, And complicating this whole topic is that when it comes to book publishing, you know, there's a lot of expectations that the author bring authority to their books. I mean, I I think this is obviously more true with self-help. But it's also more imperative that authors really own their own authority. And at the end of the day, no matter what genre you're writing, I think no one gives you the authority to write the book other than you. It really is an inside job.
1: Yeah. Thanks for mentioning that, Brooke. I've, I've actually never, I don't know, actually thought of that relation of the word author to the word authority. Um, so it's so interesting. And no one gives you authority, but you've got to give yourself permission. And I'd actually say that you gain authority in the act of writing a book. So I'm a little bit skeptical of the author authority model. It might end up closing too many doors, I guess, instead of opening them. Because I think when, when I think back but the books I've written, nonfiction or or fiction, I feel like I've become an authority through the daily act of writing and thinking about the book.
0: Yeah, I love that. And thank you. It's well said, because, you know, the writers out there take note. Mm. (laughs) It's it's there is a pressure. And I think you go to conferences and you pay attention to the publishing world. And people, you know, are talking about building an author platform, which is largely about building this authority to write the book. But of course, like, it's the writing of the book that lends the authority. (laughs) So we just need to push forward and do our thing.
1: Well, Brooke, before we cut to break, I feel like we should deliver on the promise of the magic we opened the show with. Do you have a trick up your sleeve? (laughs)
0: Luckily, the kind of magic we're talking about, uh, and that is the subject of Jay's book is actually the stuff of synchronicities and rituals and manifesting. And that's how writing is magic. Uh, So bringing your voice into the world and owning your authority is magic. And why Grant, I think that we too are magic makers, because the fact that this show comes together every single week is by far the most magical and magic making thing in my entire work life.
1: Thanks for that, Brooke. It's always good to remember the type of magic that we actually have ourselves. And I invite listeners to ponder their magic making while we take a short, short magical break. And we'll be right back with the magic of Jail and Cross.
0: So, Grant, it's been a while since we have talked with our listeners about The Great Courses Plus, and that is because the people behind it have been busy totally revolutionizing their collection of programs, and they have launched a whole new streaming service called Wondrium, and it's pretty exciting. Have you checked it out yet?
1: Yeah, I have, Brooke. And you're right. It's a really improved interface, uh, though with all the same quality experts and programs as before. And since they want us to do a deep dive, um, to truly recommend this service, something I take great pleasure in, I took the time to watch a few episodes, including, uh, two about the life and work of Jack London, who I have been interested in for a long time since I first became a writer. And then. Very um, special to me, I returned to the guitar class I was taking with Great Courses Plus because I haven't quite mastered that yet.
0: (laughs) I'm I'm glad to hear you were able to pick that back up. Uh, And I chose to look at how to raise lifelong learners. I wanted to get some ideas for James. You know, he is um, not quite a teen. He's a tween, but I was drawn to this episode called Teens when teens love to learn. Uh, I I think maybe I'm a little bit nervous that as he goes into high school, he's going to start to be resistant to academics, which was actually something I experienced with my stepsons.
1: Oh, interesting. Well, I hope not. Me too. Well, there's definitely something for everyone from the very geekiest of programming to the super specific. Uh, They even have a program called English Grammar Boot Camp, which I'm looking forward to like I would a vacation to the Caribbean, believe it or not.
0: (laughs) And I can't think of a single writer who I wouldn't recommend that program to.
1: Yeah, the best thing about Wondrium being back with their new platform and their new look is that I'm learning on my dog walks again. And this is serious because I spend an hour a day walking Buster, which adds up to a lot of class time each year. And I want to be able to say I'm 300 hours smarter this year.
0: (laughs) And that is a good goal. And I know a lot of our listeners took advantage of the pandemic to read and follow their intellectual pursuits. But for me, it's been kind of the opposite. I've used it to catch up on a lot of TV, and I have not been as rigorous and engaged as I'd like to be. So I am very into Wondry. coming back into my life. Uh, And Grant, what's the rundown for listeners?
1: Here's the rundown. Wondrium's curated library makes lifelong learning fun. Their engaging videos are full of mind-blowing content covering every topic you've ever wondered about. So dive into documentaries, travelogues, tutorials, and so much more.
0: That is fabulous. And as I said, English grammar. Come on, folks. There is so much more uh, also like on the writing front from revising the novel to the art of storytelling to how to sell your work. Uh, And it probably goes without saying, Grant, that the best part of all of this is that we have a special URL to get our listeners started with a free trial of unlimited access. And so I'm going to have you do the honors.
1: I love special URLs. I know. (laughs) But I also it makes me feel (laughs) special. But I also want to say that part again. Unlimited. So to get this offer, sign up now through our special URL, wondrium.com backslash right minded. That's W O N D R I U M, that spells wondrium, dot com slash right minded.
0: Wondrium is 100% my favorite streaming service. And so get out there and learn about whatever you want, whenever you want. Just go to Wondrium.com slash RightMinded. Welcome back, everybody. Today we have with us J. Allen Cross, who is a practicing witch of Mexican, Native American, and European descent, whose craft was shaped by his Catholic upbringing and mixed family culture. Living in his home state of Oregon, he works as a psychic medium and a cult specialist for a well-known paranormal investigation team out of the Portland metro area. And when he's not investigating, he enjoys providing spells and potions to his local community, exploring haunted and abandoned places, working as a consultant for other workers and investigators, and of course, writing about witchcraft. Hey, Jay, thank you so much for being with us on the show today.
2: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: I wanted to start by asking you about the inspiration for this book, which is called American Brujeria, or maybe more to the point about your authority to write this book, because I know that publishers of a book like this often want someone who's an expert on the subject matter. And I'm curious if you could talk about how you became a subject matter in all of these things that you're writing about magic, uh, what you call brujeria. Uh, What's the backstory of how this book came to be?
2: Absolutely. So my inspiration for the book itself was my community, um, and not specifically the Mexican people, but Mexican American people who are kind of in this strange in-between place uh, between two different cultures of, you know, Mexican culture and American culture. We are, we kind of fall somewhere in the middle. And a lot of the times, you know, anyone who is of mixed culture or mixed race will will find themselves kind of in this liminal space that I talk about. And when this happens, it can be a very isolating place to be because, you know, one side thinks you belong in the other side and the other side thinks you belong on the other side. So people can feel very lonely here. And so what I really wanted to do was spotlight this community and let people know, you know, if they're in this community, that they aren't alone and that there are actually many of us who are here experiencing the same things that they are. As far as kind of how this book came about and kind of how I ended up writing it, as someone who is Mexican-American, I kind of grew up in this space where kind of things are taught to you. Um, You know, you grow up a lot of the times Catholic and that also has a certain amount of magic to it as well. But with the book itself, I had the idea and I really wanted to, to go forth with it, but I also wanted to make sure that it wasn't just about me and my experiences. So one of the things that I did was I reached out to every Mexican American person that I knew who kind of grew up here in the United States, but had Mexican ancestry. And I spoke with immigrants as well, um, who came from Mexico and really got their take on the work and the things that they had been taught. And this is folk magic, which means that um, every family, um, depending on what area they came from, depending their own personal traditions will have a little bit of a different spin on the magic. So it was really wonderful to get to see kind of how other people approached the same things that I had learned. So we got to see kind of the very, a whole bunch of different variations on it. It's very much kind of like, you know, a lot of families have, um, you know, all the ants will squabble about who makes the best pie or chili or thing like that and they're all making kind of essentially the same thing but the recipes are different how they go about it what they feel the secrets to it are is all very different um and that's something that i wanted to highlight and something i got it got to learn about as well on this side um which was all part of making the book happen
1: well, Jay, you know, I, I in the introduction to your book, you wrote about being nervous, at least initially, to write this book because you, you felt like you were speaking for your culture and your community. And so I'm curious, now the book is out in the world, have you gotten pushback on speaking for your culture or for your community? And and what kind of advice would you give to folks out there who are grappling with similar concerns with their own work? Because I think this is like a very prevalent concern with writers.
2: Um. You know, I really haven't. I mean, of course, you're going to have people who just hate your book simply because it exists. I mean, Mm. that's something that all writers and authors are going to run into. Um, But overall, the actual response to it has been very, very positive. I've gotten a lot of messages. um, I've seen a lot of posts from people who really felt that this work open them up to not only their own culture, but their family as well. A lot of people have sent me messages that were like, oh my God, I, I never understood my grandmother until I read your book. And now I get it. I now I get why she does the things that she does, um, which is wonderful. But the thing is, is that when it comes to being an author or being a writer or putting a book out there, the, the fact of the matter is that we are responsible for the words that we put down on the page But we can't be responsible for how people react to them or how they kind of perceive the information through their own lens, through their own experiences, through their own personal baggage, which is something that it would be wonderful if we could avoid that. But we really can't as writers. Um, Everyone is going to see something different in the work, even if it's not something that you put in there. Um, I had people very upset with me about things that i didn't even put in the book (laughs) so you 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 can't always make everybody happy so if if there's any writers out there who are concerned about that simply put the work out there and the people that it's meant to find the people who whose lives it's meant to change will find it and the other people will as well but (laughs) you can't change that
0: (laughs) That's good advice, Jay. Um, I, I feel like this is a hybrid book because it's very personal in some moments. You share history and folklore. And you include prayers and blessings and even Bible verses. And you also have spells and recipes. And so it's really a mosaic. And I love these kinds of books that are part how-to and, you know, part personal story. And so I was just curious about the inspiration, like whether you had inspiration for other books when you were coming up with how to structure this. um, And how do you or how did you think about structuring your book when you have so many different elements that you wanted to include?
2: Hmm. The funny thing is, is that I actually had submitted a completely different book to Wiser, my publisher. Um, I had originally set out to do a book of North American folk magic. And turns out that is a very, very big (laughs) subject to try and tackle in your first book, especially in kind of our current political internet climate where everyone is concerned about cultural appropriation and people having any sort of contact with other cultures, things like that, it gets very dicey. So I, I had originally started with something much bigger, and ended up whittling it down to specifically my corner of kind of North America, so to speak, um, or, or kind of my, my slice of it. Um, so so that, that was part of it was kind of whittling it down to that.
1: Well, Jay, you know, you mentioned that you did a lot of research uh, within the Mexican-American community for the book, and you talked to a lot of people, and you mentioned that, that, you know, people shared their stories and in some cases introduced you to their elders. And it made me wonder who in your family holds these cultural stories and and how important to your upbringing was Mexican-American folklore and magic, or did you find it later in life?
2: Um, you know, it was kind of weaved in between because it's so funny the way that this magic works is that it kind of finds its way into your hands, no matter what, like, if you have that heritage, it sort of comes to you. And and Mexican American is very broad term between people who are here first generation or people who are here, you know, many generations. So it's a, it's a very broad scope. Um, for me, The way I was introduced to a lot of it was, you know, I grew up in, of course, a a family that was genetically and and heritage wise Mexican-American. And we grew up Catholic. But my mother had actually been adopted and we didn't find her birth family until I was about eight or nine, Um, at which point. Well, when my mother was adopted, they put on her records that she was Irish and Danish and a little bit of Spanish. Turns out that's an absolute lie, um, and she had she had always known that because there there was no way that we were that we were Danish. If, if you look at me or my mother, we're clearly you know indigenous to the Southwest. But her reconnecting with her birth family led to us attempting to reclaim as much as that of that as we could, and learning about my heritage at that time was very important to me. And so, a lot of the things that I learned, kind of spiritually speaking, was either through church or through my grandmother, who um, was very devoutly religious um, and a visionary in certain ways. She would go to church and she would pray and she would receive visions that she believed came from God. And then she'd tell us about it. So a lot of my experience growing up with Mexican-American culture was through the reclamation process um, of us kind of reconnecting with it. And that's what I wanted to help people do as well through this book.
0: Well, um, I watched some of your YouTube videos, and you're quite charismatic. They're actually very funny in certain parts, and um, I, I see how much you have going on. I mean, you're teaching classes, you write a column, you've written, and you're promoting this book. Of course, you're a practicing witch, and then there's that line in your bio about being a psychic medium and a cult specialist for a well-known paranormal investigative team. And this obviously sounds like a TV show. And in fact, I totally think you should have your own TV show. After watching you on YouTube, you're great. Uh, So can you tell us what it means to be a practicing witch? And then I also definitely want to know how one goes about becoming a psychic medium and a cult specialist with an investigation team. How do you get that gig?
2: (laughs) Certainly. So practicing witch just simply means that I am a witch who is actively engaging in spellcraft um, on a day-to-day basis. Um, So it's what I actually do for work right now. I'm a full-time professional witch. Um, is is what I do as a job right now, um, which is wonderful. It's a little weird when people ask you at a dinner party, "What do you do?" Um, but uh, that's essentially what I mean by by practicing witch. Um, and as far as the paranormal investigation is concerned, I I kind of have walked two slightly different spiritual paths that they they feel separate, but in in kind of the the big scheme of things, they're very much connected. But Growing up along with the, the witchcraft thing that I discovered at a very early age, I also realized that there were other things going on with me. Um, when I was very young, I realized that I was having dreams of things that would then later happen, which was kind of my, my first clue that, that something was going on. And and then it kind of escalated from there until I kind of had to come to terms with it in late elementary school, middle school time that I was psychic which is a very weird thing to try and tell your parents. At the the time, it was just my mother. Um, I'm like, "Um, this is a thing I think is happening. Um, And and bless her, the next day she came home from work with a cutout from a magazine that was an article, and I'm going to date myself here, but for the new show that was about to come out called Medium about a woman named Alison Dubois who helped solve crimes and help people with her dreams and other kind of psychic abilities. And she brought home this this article that she had cut out of a magazine and was like, look, this is something that, you know, you're not alone in, there are other people like you, and other people are using this to help folks. And so I knew very early on that it wasn't just a a a freak accident that I had the abilities that I have. And so as I kind of grew and developed, I grew from the dreams into more mediumship, speaking with the dead, um, at which point I knew that that was how I was going to be able to help people. So from high school, I was about, I think 15, maybe 16. When I took my first case all by myself, I went to a local business that was experiencing a haunting um, that was also my first run in with a, what I now call a negative entity. And from there it just grew. And I, I spent many years doing this work by myself, just going to, you know, people's houses, people's businesses, you know, they would just call me because I kind of developed a reputation in my small town for doing this work. And so they, they get in touch with me. I'd go out there and I'd help them. And eventually I moved to Portland for school and, I wanted to continue doing the work, but I didn't know anybody in Portland. Nobody, nobody knew to call me if they were having trouble. It wasn't my hometown anymore. So I actually, weirdly enough, went to a psychic fair and at a psychic's booth in Portland, simply to ask them. You know, I was having trouble doing one-on-one uh, readings as far as mediumship was concerned, and. So I wanted to ask her, I'm like, um, you, you know, how how can I get over this hurdle? And she sort of just looks at me and goes, I'm going to give you a card because I think you would be great on our team. And I'm like, I have no idea who this person is. She has no idea who I am. <laughs> but turns out um, she was absolutely correct. I, I joined our, our paranormal team. And due to my witchcraft background, I kind of quickly became the cult specialist and uh, most of our team is actually made up of psychic mediums, so I'm one of several um, psychic mediums on the team. But kind of the the weird, witchy stuff is 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 my is, is my area on the team. So if there is something where they're like, I feel like Satan's in the basement, they send me.
1: <laughs> Jay, that's so interesting. Um, I Could have sat and listened to that forever, but I've got to switch gears here, and 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 I want to talk, ask you a question about. Um, publishing. And publishing extends to promotion, which is distasteful to many authors, it's, or it's, it's, it's challenging, I think, for all. So I think it'd be like super helpful to our audience to, to hear about your impressions of the book world post-book and what it looks like in terms of the highs and lows of promoting and whether you're even feeling the pressure to promote.
2: It is a very strange thing to try and promote your book because you are essentially promoting yourself, um, which is always, it, it always feels weird because we're always very much told not to do that. <laughs> like you know, that's yeah. bad form. Um, so then to to move into that, it, it is difficult. But I I was lucky enough to amass a bit of a following on social media before the book came out. I was already talking about um, you know Mexican American folk magic things like that. So so I already had a bit of an audience going into it. So I simply had to tell them that the book was coming and available, which was good. Um, I also have a, a mother who is a former publicist. Mm. So I had a lot of advice there. And of course, Wiser, my publisher, um, was wonderful helping me to market this book. They, um, they connected me with a, actually a, a publicity agency and they did a lot of help, a lot of work um, to help me promote the book, which was very, very much appreciated, because I'm not sure I could have done it um, on my own. So I was very lucky to have a lot of people who believed in the book. The truth is, when it comes to marketing your book is that at the end of the day, we didn't write this book for no one to read it. And so we just simply need to remember that and remind ourselves that it's okay to tell people about our books. It's okay to show people our books. Um, even if we're shy, even if we're nervous, um, it's important to talk about it because whether it's fiction or nonfiction, we're all storytellers here and the world needs stories. Good advice.
0: Great point to end on too. Thank you, Jay. It's been really wonderful to have you.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much.
1: We will be right back with today's book trend.
0: today's book trend is the sensitivity read. And as we touched upon in today's show, sensitivity reads are increasingly common, so much so that we're recommending at She Writes Press and Spark Press that anyone writing outside their own culture get one.
1: Yeah, that's such a great recommendation. And I know the sensitivity reads have attracted critiques when they were initially introduced. I don't know when they were initially introduced. I think I initially heard about them maybe seven or eight years ago. Um, and some people mistakenly viewed them as a type of censorship, but this feels like an important and positive trend, Brooke. So, you know, so that authors can prevent missteps and, and have someone with a critical eye or someone from the culture that the author might be writing about weigh in about anything that might be insensitive or, or just problematic or overlooked. What's your experience with these sensitivity reads?
0: Honestly, all positive. Um, it is important for any author to consider the impact of their words and their stories, of course, and especially through a different cultural lens. And of course, uh, it's important to say like not all authors need a sensitivity read, but if you're writing outside of your culture, your experience, I think for people who are writing about um, you know, people with different sexual orientations or someone with disabilities and certainly dialogue in a different uh culture, you're trying to show someone who has an accent. It just is important to hear uh, and see reflected back to you how those things land. Uh, And then we have a lot of memoirists who are white women who've gone and lived in other cultures, and then they're writing their memoir about living in Peru or Thailand or the Congo. Um, And in these cases, sometimes what comes up is that the authors see the world through a very white lens and sometimes the way that that's impacted is like in the characterization of the local peoples that inadvertently reinforce stereotypes and so we've seen these kinds of things be prevented in a way that actually opens up for the writer a much broader way of looking at something and so to your point you know it's just uh preventing narratives and uh that is actually the work of repair in my opinion so i it's an easy thing for authors And publishers to do. You know, it really just increases awareness on the part of the writer. Um, And so for me, it's just meant more authentic portrayals, and that's honoring the other, you know, that might be showing up in your book.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to think about it as just a commonplace kind of editing or book production process you know like you get the development edit you get the sensitivity read then you get the copy edit um so i'm curious how this fits into that kind of family of editing how much does it cost to get a sensitivity read
0: yeah, I mean, just like any editorial service, it varies a lot. I've seen some as low as $500. i am sure people could find someone to do it as a favor or an exchange, you know, if you're really mm-hmm. concerned about cost. Um, and other times as much as $1,500, you know, so that can feel hard for people's budget when they're already thinking about so many other costs. Uh, so you should shop around. And then there are some copy editors who weave this service into their copy editing fee, but you would want to make sure that that person and has some experience um and in some cases if you're trying to find the person that comes from the culture that you're writing about that can actually be a, a bit of a goose hunt <laughs> for lack of a better word I have the goose hunt. <laughs> yeah so um but you know so i'm just saying i spoke to someone recently who was wanting to find a sensitivity reader who was japanese and she had to look broadly to find that person but that said there are lots of people who are out there and I think it's pretty easily googleable or you you know put the word out who you're looking for
1: Huntable. <laughs> yeah, a friend of mine who is Puerto Rican but has lived in California for most of her life recently hired a sensitivity reader for a novel she wrote that took place in Puerto Rico, and it was interesting for me just to hear about that. Um, the lesson I took from it is that it's always good to be sensitive to the fact that you might need a sensitivity reader. And with that, we try to be sensitive and attuned to the plethora of writing topics that nourish a good creative mindset. So please keep downloading us and listening to us. We're on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts on the internets. And we always appreciate ratings, but we mainly appreciate listening. So thank you. And we'll see you next week.